0: If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, my original goal, as I said this morning, was uh we'll look at the same chapter, but I want to highlight four four points of application we can get from this chapter. The problem is we only got through one of those this morning. So um hope you're not sleepy. Um I'm only kidding. We'll we'll do the best we can, and if we don't get through everything, we'll Lord willing. <laughs> There is next week, unless, you know, God could bring it into things. And uh, I keep hoping that happens the closer we get to, to, to the election. So um, maybe we'll discuss it in heaven. I don't know. First Samuel 24, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you." Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when the Saul, Saul looks behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your arm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my Father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but by my hand shall not be against you, as the proverb of the ancient says, "Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but by my hand shall not be, but by my hand shall not be against you after whom. Uh, has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, "Is this your voice, my son David?" Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, "You are more righteous than I. for You have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and in that you did not kill me." when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always, open our hearts and our mind, our eyes, and our ears, our mouths, our hands, our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. Having uh, encountered your word, heard your word, may we apply it in the world. This is your work. I ask that uh, I will decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. May we be seated. One of the great debates of our age today is how do we approach evil and sin in this world? And it really comes down to as a general rule, that we have to choose between two options. One is we deal with it on a personal level, um, or we deal with it at a more corporate or communal level. And really think about it, the, the debates of our age between left and right really come down to that. On the right, you have an emphasis on uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you've got to be responsible you know, for what you do, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's the more uh, leftist view that says the opposite, that says, no, the problem with the world is systemic, it's corporate. And so we have to deal with the system, and whatever replaces the system will magically be perfect, right? Although no system's ever been perfect. But then again, we think that, that, that if only I can fix this one area of my life, I will be perfect, and we may work in that one area of my life only to discover there's a lot of areas in my life that need to be worked on. The Christian approach is really both and. To see that the reason there is systemic evil, corporate evil, is because there is personal evil, personal sin. Not just sin that I commit against others, but sin that others commit against me. Well, when we come to this text, we are seeing that very issue uh, coming at the forefront. Here we are seeing where one who is victimized by sin, dealing with not just the one who is oppressing him, but the entire system that is targeting him. We have here a Christian response to evil, sin, and suffering. This morning, we we saw that David had to learn to trust God's timing. That's that's really a, a difficult issue. Again, in our age, we believe that if something is bad, I can fix it today. That's the American way, right? I can just go ahead and fix it right now. Uh, But David must learn that in God's timing, God's promises will be realized. The second point of application we need to see from this text is that vengeance is God's. What makes the story so difficult, to me at least, and I suspect to we, is that deep down, you and I disagree with David. Let's be honest. Maybe we've watched too much action films, but if you had the opportunity that David had, wouldn't you take it? I mean, just think about the, the sort of things we do uh, just to save 10 cents at a store. The things we, we will do to each other just to get ahead in our career. The things that we will do to each other for this or that reason. And so what we have here in the forefront of this narrative is this contrast between revenge on the one hand and vengeance on the other. And if we allow ourselves, we will uh, uh, synchronize the two, thinking that revenge is vengeance, that revenge is justice. One of the things I do like about all the superhero stories that we are overwhelmed with is how front and center this issue is. Is revenge justice is revenge vengeance. And and throughout many of these stories, there is a clear line. Now, they may disagree what that line is, but there is a clear line between justice and simple malice. Society cannot function when we cross from justice and malice. Let's be honest, that's where our society is right now. If you fit in the right people group, then it is it, that so the act of malice is confused with justice, rather than a more standard equality under the law. Well, David must learn that vengeance, even when his enemy is vulnerable and and able to strike down, is still the Lord's. A couple of things we need to learn here about vengeance. The first thing is that vengeance is God's responsibility. Vengeance is God's responsibility. You you can read the Bible, and over and over again, this issue pops up. It does so here in narrative form, but in other areas, it's very direct. For example, uh, uh, Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, that's revenge, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Just pause there for a minute and consider, once you reject the wrath of God, you become the wrath of God. If you do not trust in God's wrath that vengeance will be carried out in this life or the next, then the only hope you have is for you to carry out such vengeance. Without the wrath of God, there's a lot of evil and revenge in the world. Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time Uh, when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Don't you just love that, right? Uh, That their doom is, is coming. Or Ezekiel 25, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Psalm 94, 1, Oh Lord, God of vengeance. Oh, God of vengeance, shine forth. We don't pray like this, do we? How many of our hymns in our hymn book, you can get it out and look because you know, I'll probably lose you after this. Just try to find a hymn that sounds like this. We don't sing like this anymore. We'll act like it though. We do act like it. If I can just get my hands on them, right? But what's the prayer here? Psalm 94, God of vengeance shine forth. Now notice the repetition there. Remember in Hebrew, we saw it this morning. In Hebrew, there is no highlighting. There is only repetition for the purpose of emphasis. And so when you see God of vengeance, God of vengeance, this is for emphasis, much of the way we see in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. So vengeance is God's responsibility. It's not my responsibility. And I feel good already. It's not your job to carry out the wrath of God. Isn't that what David demonstrates here? It's not his job. If Saul is under the judgment of God, then let him fall under the judgment of God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't use other people. God's vengeance doesn't mean their house is going to collapse on them, right? (laughs) I mean, that could happen. I don't know. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. But it does mean sometimes God does use uh, other people for, for, for God's judgment. We've actually seen that in the story of David. That means the second thing. If the first thing is true, the second thing must be true. If if vengeance is God's responsibility, love is our responsibility. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That comes from the Old Testament. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Notice he takes the word resist. Resist. Before he says, if, to not resist someone means to fight back. Now he says, to refuse to resist someone is to turn the other cheek. Now you tell me which one re- requires greater courage. It's to turn the other cheek. Look, if, if, if vengeance is God's, love is my responsibility. So Paul will write in 1 Timothy 5, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and, and to everyone. It's a very simple principle to live by. What happens whenever we, we return evil with evil? First of all, we're probably not defining the word evil very good. It's amazing that if I do the same thing someone did to me, it's because mine was justified but theirs wasn't. We're not defining evil very good. And what happens when evil uh, uh, is, is, is uh, you repay evil with evil, th- that evil person is not gonna repay your evil with more evil. And you've gotta up the ante. And it's just a vicious cycle. That's why Jesus says those who live by the sword die by the sword. I've used this story before about the Hatfield McCoys. I read the story, a book on it, and I thought, those who live by the Winchester die by the Winchester. Those who live by people groups will die by people groups. Those who live by politics will die by politics. Those who live by man's salvation will die by man's salvation. Those who are driven by violence will die by violence. It is a vicious cycle that never ends. If it is God's responsibility to carry out vengeance, then it is my responsibility to carry out love. It is not my responsibility to revenge. And that leads, thirdly, it is the state's responsibility to carry out justice. Of course, Romans 13 makes this clear for he, that is the government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, ideally, government punishes bad people and protects good people. It doesn't always do that. Uh, government is imperfect because it is run by imperfect people. And so every system is imperfect because it's made up of imperfect human beings. But with that said, the function of government is to carry out God's sword. Now, that is at the very least a reference to uh, uh, criminal punishment. I, I think it's a reference to capital punishment, honestly. But but at the very least, the idea is that the government uh, must intercede in matters of criminality and justice. Because if you don't have that system, what happens? Uh, you, you did me wrong, now I'm going to do you wrong. And whoever wins in the end, uh, wins in the end, right? Um, and, and that is a broken, terrible system. That's the Viking system, isn't it? Right? So, so if you go steal gold from these people over there, right, and, and your neighbor steals gold from you, isn't he just engaging in the system that got you all the gold to begin with? It's a vicious cycle. Now what we need is a third party, one commissioned by God to carry this out. This is, this is part of the American system. It doesn't matter how angry you are, how bitter you are, you cannot avenge uh, any crime committed against you. Because when you do that, now you are guilty of a crime. We understand it is the state's responsibility. This is why when you stand uh, in, uh, at a court, it is Mr. Smith against the people, right? Um, and and uh, for, for that very very reason. Thirdly, actually, I think it's fourthly. My numbers aren't right. I went to public high school in Owen County. Um, Hate is a heavy burden to carry. Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Isn't that freeing? Look, if, if you believe that vengeance is your responsibility... You will live your life with the burden of hate, and that is a burden too heavy for any man or woman to carry. In fact, isn't that what David confesses here? He, he makes that very clear. Go, go down to verse 12 to, to 15. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the anxious says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. My hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. He says, look, I will not choose hatred because what would motivate me to end your life is not justice, it is hatred. And that is a burden too great for any man to carry. I choose hatred grace. I think Alistair Begg's take on this scene is quite helpful, so I'm just going to steal it from him and take credit for it. He says, David was Saul's enemy, but Saul was not David's enemy. I love that. That is so practical. Look, you cannot control what people think of you, but you can control how you treat other people. The burden of hate is great for any of us to bear, it is a burden that you and I do not need and must not carry. And that leads to the second point or the third one, whatever one we're on uh, between this morning and this evening. If, if vengeance is God's responsibility, then we need to learn that mercy triumphs over hate. Mercy triumphs over hate. In verses 3 to 7, um, saw, or David is sparing David's life. And again, that, that question, like, would we do that? I mean, we are um, quite rough when it comes to small, insignificant things. I mentioned earlier the uh, save 10 cents on a can of beans or to get that, that, that promotion or to not have to pay so much in taxes um, or to beat our political point, whatever it is. We can be pretty vicious. But then put yourself in David's shoes. Had David done this, he would have been praised. Not only would he have been praised by his men who were following him through a lot of Thick and thin, but he would have received the throne and people would have loved him. David is the popular politician running for office, not Saul. So who would have cared what happened to Saul? Everyone wanted David to be on the throne. David doesn't choose to be popular, he chooses to be holy. And so in verses 8 to 15, David lays out his reasoning for why he didn't kill Saul. And the reason really comes down he chose mercy over hate. Let's see how he articulates this. First of all, David shows respect even when respect had been lost. Uh, Notice the titles that David gives Saul. In verse 8, he calls him my lord, and then he calls him my king. In verse 10, he refers to him on multiple occasions to Saul's face and behind Saul's back. He describes him as the Lord's anointed, Yahweh's anointed. Now remember, David is the anointed one. But David understands that until God places him on the throne, he will show Saul due respect deserving of the title. After all, David is going to expect the same from everyone else when he has the throne. In verse 11, he refers to him even as my father. Now, obviously, he's not his literal father, right? Um, But that is a title of endearment and love. Uh, He refers to him as my father, And notice the acts of respect he shows in verse eight. It says, David bowed his face to the earth. Now, now maybe I just don't understand the customs well enough, but I would think that if, if you just turn down the opportunity to behead the guy, and then when you see him face to face a few minutes later, and the first thing you do is bow your head towards him and he is still armed, you're putting yourself at risk. He paid homage, it says there in verse eight. Notice also he didn't raise his voice. He doesn't taunt the man. He doesn't rant against Saul on social media. Rather, despite all of Saul's hatred and rage and violence towards David, the future king rises above that. It is not brave to shout, the foam at the mouth or the burn down private businesses. True bravery is to face an opponent in the face and show mercy. This has always been the story of Christianity, isn't it? That though we may have the opportunity to rage in the foam and to fight, we choose grace because God in his grace has done the same for us. It's not only does he show him respect, but... David reasons with Saul. We we see that in, particularly in, in verses 10 and 11. Notice he says there, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, he is reasoning with him. And you see, even before that, he, he asks." In verse nine, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Now, on the one hand, we need to say you cannot reason and and give nuance to hate. If you don't believe me, um, grab a little, it's a little rectangular thing called a remote. And you hit the power button and pick a channel. And what you'll find is you cannot reason or offer nuance in a world of hate. Try it sometime, and you'll realize just how impossible it is. But nevertheless, David graciously shows mercy and reason to Saul. Why do you believe the lies, he's asking. I've gone out of my way to be loyal to you, and yet you believe the lie, and that lie got deeper and deeper to the point it consumed you. This is why Paul will describe, and Jesus will describe, lies as demonic, because Satan is the father of lies. And how many of us, perhaps, Right now, we continue to believe lies that lead us down a path towards despair and hate. And we're doing this as a nation, right? We lump entire people groups into a corner and say, if they look like this, if they act like this, if they vote like this, they must be evil, racist, bigoted, uh, anarchists, Marxists, war mockers, greedy, or vile. Whatever term that will get me the most press is the one I'm going to use. We do this, don't we? we? We don't use reason, we choose hate. But the gospel comes and says, no, we, we choose mercy. Here is David, vulnerable as he is before his king, his sovereign. And he asks, well, why do you believe these lies? The reason I didn't kill you is because I'm not a murderer, despite everything you've heard about me. The third thing David does, David offers Saul a way out of this vicious cycle of violence. We saw there in verses 12 through 15, let God judge between us. If I am guilty of evil, he says, may God condemn me. If not, may you be condemned for your injustices. David is encouraging Saul to do the right thing, to go another route, to right his wrong for the sake of his soul, for the sake of the nation. I think it's fair to say that we as a nation are choosing hate over mercy. And the reason is because we're losing the influence of Christianity in our nation. Christianity is driven by mercy and the gospel, not by hate. And so we are caught in a cycle of rage and wrath and hatred. We talk a lot about the Hatfield-McCoy uh, feud in Kentucky during uh, Reconstruction, but that wasn't the only family feuds going on in Kentucky. There, there were dozens of them around that time. Uh, one of them worth highlighting, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, it was called the Heels-Evans feud. It consumed Garrett County. And it began in the antebellum era of 1850s, intensified during the Civil War, and finally concluded in 1877. Now, the way historians usually describe it is that it ended in 1877, not because there was peace, but because there was no one else to kill. And so the feud came to an end. And that is the problem with choosing hate over mercy. Eventually, there was no one left to hate, or or we don't survive it. How many people do we need to push out of our lives before we realize that this isn't working? How much longer will we choose partisan politics over love before we realize that we are being torn apart? How many more hours in front of a television screen believing every lie in our own ch- chosen echo chambers before we realize we are contributing to the problem ourselves? How many more cities need to burn? Innocents need to die before we choose mercy over hatred. That's why we need Repentance. Word in partisan politics. I mean, notice down in verse 21 to 22, that even Saul's cold, hate-filled heart sees David as a man of mercy and grace. Swear to me, therefore, the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. You will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Like Saul knows you indeed are a man of mercy. Wouldn't it be nice if the culture saw Saul, the church, as a community of mercy. It doesn't see us that way right now, does it? Certainly not in an election year. And I had just one more thing about this text, and I know we're moving fast. And that is that repentance transforms. We're seeing this with Saul, aren't we? Repentance transforms. After the experience in the cave, David confronts Saul and confesses to him his wrongdoing without demanding Saul repent. First, I think that's what we pointing out. David... Uh, Confronts Saul, confessing his mistake, before he expects Saul to repent to him. Now Saul's committed a little worse crimes, if you will, right? I mean, I would think once the spear goes, vroom, right, that guy's probably done more evil than you cutting off a piece of his robe. I mean, he has to go shopping now, but some of you all think that 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 is a an excuse, right? I mean, yeah, yay! You know, but but so so Saul's more in the evil, but David takes the initiative. It's sort of like one of my pet peeves, right? And, and you're driving down the road and the person will not turn off their, their uh, bright lights, right? And you're in a rural area. You don't do this in the city because y'all are backwards. But you're out in the rural area and they will not turn off their brights until you do. Y- you've met these people, right? Anyone not from the city, you've met these people. They're the worst people in the world, right? Let's be honest, right? Because sometimes you may forget, especially if you have kids in the car because you're doing this thing, right? And then all of a sudden you can't see because this joker won't turn off his brights until you do it, right? And now you wish he, the other hand could get him. I don't know. But, but that's not the way David functions. Even though Saul is looking to kill David, David does his part to make things right with Saul. He takes the initiative of reconciliation we, We find this exchange bizarre because this is not how we function. Sure, I'll listen to what you have to say if it begins with, I'm sorry. That's not how it works. Now, we as believers must begin in demonstrating true repentance and reconciliation. So what we see here is both true repentance and false repentance. First, let's look at true repentance. There's uh, four aspects to true repentance. First, there is the realization of sin. That's verses five and six, right? When, when, when David's heart is broken, his conscience is seared, and he realizes, I have done something wrong. I'm not a victim of wrongdoing. I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's not because of my upbringing. No, I am guilty, period. And so he, he realizes he has committed a sin, and, and sin must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. Either it will consume us or it will be crucified. But sin must be dealt with. That leads to an honest confession. He, he, he goes out and says, hey, Saul, you mind if we talk for a minute? Right? And, and Saul is taken aback. Right? He realizes, where did this guy come from? And, and he says, look, here's the issue. I almost did something bad. In fact, what I did do was inappropriate. Now, again, pause. What we would do is say, Saul... I think we've got to work out our problems. You've tried to kill me multiple times and I just don't understand what your problem is. I'm going to call the cops. That's not David's response. David realizes he's committed sin and in that realization leads to him quickly confessing his sin. We do the opposite, don't we? Well, it's just a little oopsie-doopsie. But don't worry, I'm going to let it consume me until it pushes this person I claim to love and tears us apart. And then maybe I'll deal with it. Yeah, because that works every time. Now, David is honest and he is quick with his confession. Thirdly, he accepts the consequences of his actions. Here's something a lot of people struggle with is is they think that, well, if I can confess my sin, I don't have to live with the consequences of my sins. And we've seen that with the story of David, haven't we? That is not the way reality works. David knows that now he's he's vulnerable before Saul. And Saul can, by law, have him executed for this rebellious acts. But he also knows that he has sinned against God and he must make it right. And that leads to the fourth thing that true repentance does. And that is it changes our behavior. Repentance should not be confused with an apology. Apology may be part of the act of repentance. After all, we saw that with confession. Saul, I have sinned against you. All right? That is part of what apology is. It is. But it's more than just a mere apology. It is the transformation of the soul. David understands that repentance is the primary step towards transformation and reconciliation. What we typically do is we'll say is, look, I said I'm sorry. What else you want from me? Well, by your attitude, I can tell you, ain't much of change about you, Hoss, because now you probably got to confess the sin of what that just was. No, but repentance transforms behavior. I am different because I've been confronted with my sin, I've dealt with my sin, and I reject my sin. You will either be consumed by your sin or you will crucify your sin. We must make the choice. Well, if David demonstrates what true repentance looks like, Saul demonstrates what false repentance looks like, which is basically what we do every day, if we're lucky. The first thing that Saul gets wrong is he thinks that re- he chooses regret not transformation. He chooses regret over transformation. That's 16 verse 22, isn't it? Saul apologizes to David for his hatred, but he doesn't stop hunting David down. In fact, if you go over to chapter 26 verse 1 and 2, it's maybe helpful to see. So if you think the story of David is going to change, it ain't gonna for a few more chapters. Chapter 26, verse 1 and 2. Then the Ziphites, you remember those cats in chapter 23, came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hills of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose, went down to the wilderness of Ziph, and 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Does that story sound familiar? Yeah. Because regret ain't transformation. Regret ain't repentance. Regret may play a role in the step towards repentance, but mere regret isn't repentance. So Saul here, what is he regretting? He got caught. And they're right, young men and women, right? You you know, teenagers, like every parent says, you're not sorry for what you did. You're sorry you got caught. Because let me tell you, when I was a kid and a teenager, that was me. Right? It wasn't until I was in college that I finally revealed to my parents some of the things I'd done because I thought then I could outrun them. So, so right, I wasn't as scared, right? Because <laughs> by then they're like, Huh. No wonder you didn't tell us, because we would have (laughs) just flipped our lids, right? But this is regret. It isn't repentance. Regret, rooted in divine conviction, is the first step towards repentance, but it isn't enough. Unless we allow God to change us, then it isn't biblical sorrow. It isn't biblical repentance. And that leads to the second point. The problem with Saul here, he buys into worldly sorrow, In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, I didn't put it up here, Paul differentiates between godly and worldly sorrow. He says, for godly grief, Charlie Brown, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And here's the issue. What is the difference between worldly and godly sorrow? Let us look at worldly sorrow to help us. Worldly sorrow, first of all, is horizontal. More than likely, our sorrow is again related to getting caught rather than being wrong. Because think about it. Every wrong we've done, God knows about it. And chances are you and I don't care. But the second mom finds out, the second the boss discovers it, the second that that tweet gets out in public, then all of a sudden we start to feel guilty. That's a horizontal sorrow. It's horizontal. David will later, at the Bathsheba account, remember what he says? Only against you have I sinned. Now, that's not true, is it? There's a guy named Uriah who has been buried because of David's sin. There's a child who died in infancy because of David's sin. There's mass confusion within a household of David because of his sin. But David understands, first and foremost, godly sorrow is, first of all, vertical, before it is horizontal. It isn't so much that I've sinned against them. I first sinned against God. And because I didn't love him, I didn't love my neighbor. Worldly sorrow is horizontal. Secondly, worldly sorrow is emotional. It is emotional, we should say, but not spiritual. And unfortunately today, we think those are the same things. If I feel like I can score a touchdown for Jesus, I must be a good Christian. And then you get home from youth camp and you realize you ain't gonna score no touchdowns for Jesus. Why? Because we equate emotion with spirituality. That is not what we have. Yes, the the, the gospel affects our affections, our, our emotions, but not just exclusively that. Emotions feel impulsive. When impulsivity dies down, we're likely to return from, from the trough we left. Like, I just feel really awful what I've done to you, and I just got to deal with it here, right? But then, you know, at two, three weeks later, you're back in the same spot. Why? Because now your heart's been hardened because you haven't dealt with, God, with, with, with uh, repentance in a godly way. Now you just don't care because they wrote something nasty about you on Instagram. Right? If it's only emotional, then it isn't spiritual, Let the spiritual aspect of repentance affect us emotionally. Yes, there is regret, but there isn't godly sorrow. The third thing about worldly sorrow is that it is passive. It is not serious about crucifying sin, but is content with training sin. Big difference. You don't want to crucify sin. You want to train sin. So the problem isn't the sin, but how it manifests itself. You, 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 uh, We get this all the time, right? Um, How many public apologies in the apology you will say, look, that's just not the real me. (laughs) We got you on video, Hoss, right? I mean, what else you want from me, right? That's just not the real me. You guys should just get to know the real me and you'll know that's just not the real me. Well, then forgive me for being the sinner in this scenario, right? You abusing your spouse, I misunderstood as violence against women. I'm sorry, I was wrong. That's just not the real me, right? That's not godly grief. Because what you want there is to, to, to train your sin, not to crucify your sin. You see, my problem isn't anger. My problem is I'm just too quick-tempered. You know, and I just, I get behind the wheel of a car and I'm around people from Ohio when they drive and I just, it's their fault. It's their fault, you know. I just just need to train my sin, right? And if they would just leave me alone, I wouldn't act like this. I don't need to crucify my sin. My problem isn't greed. It's just, you can't pass up a sale, (laughs) you know. I mean, come on. Christmas is 12 months away and I gotta start now. We want to train our sin rather than crucify it. That isn't worldly sorrow. That isn't godly sorrow. It's worldly sorrow. One last thing when it comes to false repentance, that it is free of consequences. We see this with Saul, don't we? He says, look, you're, you're going to be the next king. I, I get that. Can I make a deal with you? Saul is not in a position to make deals. He isn't in a position to make deals. Because when David is king, he has every right to kill every member of Saul's family. Because that is precisely what Saul's trying to do to David. You remember, David had to hide his parents with the Moabites in fear of Saul. His brothers have committed treason, leaving behind their army career to join up with David, a motley crew of rebels, Saul seeking to kill him. is a false repentance. I'll say I'm sorry if nothing bad happens to me. That's manipulation. It is not repentance. How many public apologies say something like, I'm sorry that I offended you. What did we just confess? This wouldn't be a big deal if you weren't so sensitive all the time. Which means you're in the wrong. I'm not. False repentance thinks it's free of consequences. Saul never confesses his evil. He regrets where it has led him, but he will not take responsibility for it. And in no time flat, he's right back to where he is right here. And it will consume him to the point of death. Well, no doubt, evil and justice is a hot topic right now. And yet our public discussion and the direction we're going as a country is inadequate. Peace will only come by the means of the gospel. For it was at the cross when both personal and corporate evil collided in the execution of an innocent man. And because of who that innocent man was, he not only suffered under the sin of men and died under the sting of death, but on the third day defeated it all by his gospel. But the answer of this story is the gospel of Jesus. Whether we're talking broadly as a culture and as a nation or personally with our neighbors, our coworkers, or our friends, the gospel is the only hope for peace. For it is there the wrath of God and the mercy of God kiss. All we have to do is repent. Let's pray.